Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed. It's a podcast. My name is William Bibiani. I write for The Wrap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I write for Slash Film, and uh, you can you, you know what? You can call me whatever you like. Mm. I'm open. I'm, I'm laid back that way. Uh, on this podcast, Late for Dinner and I like to uh, like to watch old movies that are selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Here's how it works. Every episode, we pick a streaming service. Whitney picks two films that he hasn't seen before, and I pick two films that I haven't seen before. We put them on a poll, and we let our patrons decide which one we're going to watch and review on the next episode, so that to at least one of us, it's a completely fresh first-time watch, and also so that we can actually appreciate the vast libraries that are available on most of these streaming services. Uh, most of these streaming services, uh, unlike, for example, uh, the streaming services themselves, some of whom don't seem to like that they have a library anymore. Oh well, they don't. They're, it's just gone now. As we record this, uh, it is recently, like very, very recent, like within like the last couple of hours, uh, been revealed that HBO has deleted two hundred episodes of Sesame Street from HBO Max because hey. <laughs> Kids don't need to learn things. Well, it, it was very concerning when HBO bought Sesame Street. Uh, Sesame Street was a, in a little bit of dire straits just because public funding for the arts is always up for hot debate for some reason. Uh-huh. And, uh, you remember in a couple and, a couple of elections ago, Mitt Romney was mm-hmm. like going after PBS's like public funding, and it was actually a major publicity nightmare for him because everyone's like, he's trying to attack Big Bird, and everyone's like, who doesn't mm-hmm. like Big Bird? Yeah, yeah. It's like he's trying to he's trying to cut funding to Big Bird, which he was. He was trying to cut funding yes. for public television, and uh, <clears throat> so a private company stepped up. HBO. This is a good example as to why things shouldn't be privatized because <laughs> HBO bought it, uh, bought Sesame Street. They did save it, but now the it, the fate of Sesame Street is in their hands, and they are just going to follow the caprices of the market. So, it yeah, Sesame Street gone. I don't know. Is it, is it all of it, or is it all of it, or just two hundred episodes? Which, to be fair, is a um, shocking amount of television. But is it, it was, completely uh, gone, or is it just like the older episodes? It was two hundred older episodes, and then yeah. the next day it was an additional two hundred older episodes. Oh my god! So, uh, so yeah, they're they're just sort of ripping it all down. And uh, it's Sesame nice. Street, which you know has been a, a cultural staple since the nineteen seventies. You know, is is it's. Gonna, a, Probably going to be gone. I would argue that Sesame Street is actually, like, an important cultural document for, like, decades. Decades of entertainment. Mm. Decades of how and what we were teaching kids in, like, you know, in in the world. Uh, Moments and, and like, uh, lessons that are very important to a lot of people that are, like, ingrained in their DNA... To not have access to that, when it's very easy to provide access to that... Mm-hmm. Is just feels monstrous to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's 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 so sad. It's so sad. Uh, and in order to creep in and like snatch up a classic while we still could, yeah. we decided to choose our critically reclaimed film from HBO Max uh, this time. Uh, it's. I'm glad we got in. I'm glad we can <laughs> grab it because uh, it's it's kind of shocking how quickly HBO Max went into kind of a, a front runner in the so-called streaming wars. 
with a really broad catalog of titles, with a lot of really beloved original programming, mm-hmm. uh, with a lot of tie-ins to things like the Criterion Channel and Turner Classic Movies, so they actually had a pretty good back catalog of really well-regarded classic movies. They were in the, to, they're in the process of adding A24 films, which is quite a good yeah. library of films as well. And not only did they shit the bed, but they left the room to get more shit to put on the bed. It's like... <laughs> They have been just completely whiffing this whole merger with Discovery. Um, the, the new CEO has been saying some really embarrassing things in public yeah. uh, in terms of like what he wants to do with uh, the streaming service. Uh, so, yeah, we figured as long as there are at least a couple of classics, we may as well try to get one in. So we did choose HBO Max for the very reason that it's a complete mess right now. Right, and then, but again, for now at least, even with things leaving it, they still have one of the better older film libraries. By the way, someone pointed out to me that there was like a quote from someone behind the scenes at HBO Max talking about one of the benefits of cutting all of these shows from HBO Max is because audiences will be relieved that there's not too much content. That they don't have to sift through it all. And I'm like, no, and I'm going to say this right now. If anyone's listening at HBO Max or Netflix or (coughs) Disney or Amazon Prime or I don't care, any streaming service, we want the library. If we don't all watch the... we, if we don't all watch every single film constantly, okay, that's, that's just part of having a big library. We want it all there. That's a yeah, selling what? point. I am much more likely to subscribe to your service if you have mm. a big library than if you don't. Yeah. What, what, uh, what's been so frustrating about all of these... Um, just a lot of studios in general throughout history is they all do have a huge back catalogs of, of films, of really yeah. great films and TV shows that they just own. And, uh, A, I'm surprised classic movies aren't released theatrically more often and haven't been released theatrically more often. I know uh, it, this sort of thing was more common back in sort of like the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, especially if you look at the release calendars of like Disney animated pictures. Those would come mm-hmm. out every, you know, reliably every couple of years. Well, again, we didn't have home video back then, yeah, so that was yeah. the best way to see these movies when that was and the opportunity, yeah. When streaming started to come in, I'm actually kind of surprised there wasn't a big push to remind people of what some of these classics were. We're going to have a nationwide re-release of Jaws. We're going to have a national, even things yeah. that are like which lesser. Actually, like, which we actually like, have right now. They they converted it to 3D, a, which is a bummer, but like you know, it's 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 fine. Yeah, it's still a good movie. Uh, and uh, so. I'm really kind of surprised that the streaming services aren't doing the same thing. They have these huge back catalogs. Mm. Why aren't they reaching in and advertising that? Uh, Mm. Pushing those to the top. Hey, this is a great film. Have you seen the Godfather movies yet? Have you, you know... Uh, just you know, choose, choose an old classic. Have you seen the Parallax View yet? Yeah, you should watch well, that tonight. Netflix actually does this, and every once in a while, there was a there was a thing a few months ago where everyone was like kind of stunned because if you go to like the Netflix main page, one of the things they show you is here's like the top ten things people are watching right now, and it's usually right. a major new release, something that just got added to Netflix, one of the more popular Netflix original shows, for example. But then it's pretty common that one or two of those will be an older film that the algorithm just happened to recommend to people that week, and then everyone discovered it. And this happened recently with the film U.S. Marshals, 
which was a <laughs> I sequel. I remember when that happened. That's yeah, right. it was the sequel to The Fugitive. It was a sequel to The Fugitive about only Deputy Gerard and his team, uh, the character played by Tommy Lee Jones. Harrison Ford didn't come back. Wesley Snipes played the, the titular fugitive. Uh, and, and you know what? That's a perfectly good movie. It's not as good as The Fugitive. Few thrillers are. But it's a very mm. good blockbuster matinee type film. And people, many of whom didn't even realize it existed took a chance on it because it was right there at the click of a button. When you have a library, you have an opportunity for that to happen. And I was actually very heartened by that because one of the things that frustrates me in this age of streaming is that people are more likely to just seek out exactly what they know they want and get it mm. and not necessarily run into things by chance and running into things yeah, by chance yeah. and rediscovering or rewatching older things you haven't seen in a long time. Uh, is a great way for older movies that maybe had their opportunity and then just sort of shuffled off to be rediscovered and to become the new It's a Wonderful Life or some other film that, yeah, you know, yeah. was kind of overlooked in its time and was reappreciated later on. So streaming yeah. is a great opportunity for that. And and it's indeed, a- and indeed, I actually have noticed quite a few people for, to, to get into the meat of the episode. I've noticed quite a few people in the last few years when uh, this particular film uh, showed up on HBO Max, and I think we also did a run on the Criterion channel, uh, then this film went from a well-regarded uh, movie that won Jane Fonda the Academy Award for Best Actress uh, to a film that is very beloved contemporarily, and it's interesting to see why. So let's talk about Alan Pakula's Clute. Who is it? Daniels. Can I come in? Come in. Bree Daniels, girl on the brink. Somewhere among her clientele is a freak who murders call girls. Sit down. And a wholly incredible cop who insists her life is worth saving. I don't think he's going to come back again. I just don't want to be alone right now. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, Clute was a film that was uh, recommended to me when I was in college. Mm. Uh, you know, when I was just first becoming a film critic for the first time and doing things like uh, running my blog off of a tripod website. <laughs> uh, I, in order to, to make a few extra bucks, I worked in the, the college mailroom and I got to handle everybody's mail. Uh, when uh, when people left like never picked up their magazines, I got to keep them. That was really nice. Um, we we would wait like a year. We would wait like a year before we could collect people's magazines. But uh, yeah, the, these older people and older, they're probably my age. Uh, but they all said, "Hey, you should see Clute." It's like okay, noted. Uh, it took uh, you know <laughs> twenty five years, but I did it. I finally <laughs> saw Clute. So this was your first watch of Clute. So this this was my very uh, even though it had been recommended to me when I was like eighteen or nineteen, finally got around to it. So I I, I get I did it. Hey hey, people in my college mailroom, I, I saw it. Can we talk about Clute now? I'm sh- I'm sure they're listening. Uh, Clute, if anyone is unfamiliar, we just played a clip from it. Uh, but just for the record, uh, the Clute is a murder mystery uh, that stars Jane Fonda as a sex worker in New York City uh, who is being stalked by a killer. Uh, meanwhile, Donald Sutherland is a private detective who has been hired by the family of a man who is suspected to be the killer uh, to find him and solve the mystery of his own disappearance. And they end up teaming up to solve the mystery together. 
Uh, on one hand, the film works as a kind of a straightforward murder mystery, not unlike a Italian giallo, but with fewer horrific murders. Uh, and on the other hand, it's very much a character piece for Jane Fonda's character, who uh, plays a sex worker who is far more than most sex workers in the media, and frankly, unfortunately, still today, uh, very humanized and uh, yeah, treated yeah. with a lot of dignity. I think there are some issues with the film's uh, presentation, but certainly for the time, this is like light years ahead yeah. of yeah, how yeah. sex workers are treated in the media in most circumstances. Yeah, and and I think uh, a big selling point of Clute was its its language, its its sexual frankness, the way uh, the Jane Fonda character kind of talks about her work and how frankly she uh, just just sort of admits to people openly, like, oh yeah, and, and you know, I just I need a hookup today. Hey, oh, and here's a guy, and I'm going to go on a date, and she's really kind of laid back about it. Uh, Jane Fonda is so good in this movie. Yeah. Uh, in you said there is some some language that doesn't. It hasn't aged very well, but I think her attitude and her casualness and her frankness gets past a lot of that. And mm. you know, you're, you might wince a little bit at some of the language, but I think uh, Jane Fonda is the one who's there for it. Uh, and Donald Sutherland, he's a little bit more—he's uh, a little bit more uptight. He doesn't want to talk as frankly about this, but he's also a private detective who's seen a lot. He's, uh, you know, delved into the world of vice before. He's invest hes an investigator. He carries a gun, and uh, so even though he's a little bit—he doesn't talk about this. He also seems really sort of comfortable with the fact that sex work exists. Uh, there is a tendency in cinema in a lot of popular American media to uh, really vilify sex workers and we uh, and not just sex workers but also just women with sexual agency women who have a sex life and talk about it frankly Uh, we talked about this a little bit uh, when on one of our uh, critically acclaimed podcasts because we reviewed a film that was a remake of Forrest Gump Uh, there's there's an Indian remake of Forrest Gump out right now called Lal Singh Chada and Lal Singh Chada treats the uh, the Jenny character with a little bit more respect and dignity than Robert Zemeckis does. The Robin Wright character is, uh, a lot of critics noticed that she has this 1930s kind of like fallen woman narrative mm-hmm. where she goes into sex work and that is seen as some sort of like grand failing of everything. If it's you, like the bottom. If you watched Forrest, so the Forrest Gump is really two people's stories. It's Forrest Gump's stories mm-hmm. and Jenny's story. If you took out Forrest Gump's story... Forrest Gump is a scare film. Yeah, no, it's, Forrest it's, Gump is, is a tragedy. It is. It's a tragic story of a woman who falls from grace or whatever, and it's bullshit. Honestly, and now yeah. the, the film isn't that. It's important not to judge. That's like it, it's important not to do that and like say like, yeah, well, Airplane isn't funny if you take away the jokes. Like you can't. <laughs> Forrest Gump has both segments, but the Jenny segments are, are make the film very difficult in some ways. Um, and and Clute is, I think, very eager not to do that. And one of the things I yeah, like about yeah. Clute, it, it, it's it's because the media has a problem with women with sexual agency. Frankly, society does. Uh, mm. But um, the other thing that Clute does, and I think this is so important, and I think this is this is just a truly great thing. It's not, and actually, you know what? Uh, uh, my my partner, uh, um, M. Lapis da Silva, phrased it really, really, really well. Um, 
a lot some people have accused films like Clute or even like Pretty Woman, which is obviously a very different film, of romanticizing uh-huh. sex work. But that's just what it really is doing is humanizing sex workers and very importantly treating sex work as work. An yeah, actual job, someone who provides a service for a fee mm. and treats it like a job. This isn't someone who has been abducted or she she's actually like choosing this line of work because as she says she's good at it yeah, that's it's... that's it it's that she's good at it she tries to do other things they don't really pan out so she does yeah. so this is her day job there, there are a few films that attempt to talk very frankly about sex work and just completely get it wrong um there was a, a really uh, titillating book, I think it came out in the 70s, uh, called, uh, rather simply, The Happy Hooker. Uh, mm. It was by uh, Javier Holland. And, um, they made quite a few movies of those, was, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the sequel starred Adam West. Uh, and they're, they're kind of raunchy, fun, uh, frothy sex comedy films. Uh, the, uh, the book was... Uh, it sort of it, it detailed uh, the author's life as a sex worker, and uh, it kind of flew in the face of a lot of the narrative about sex work, and that she did it because she, she thought it was just really fun, uh, and that that was like sort of seen as like anti-progressive uh, when looked at it a certain way. It's like okay, sex workers are workers; they they're not there because they're having fun; they're there because it's work. And she came out with this book and saying, no, no, it is fun. I was having a lot of fun. Well, yeah. okay, you can enjoy your work. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I've seen The Happy Hooker. I have not seen The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, which I know is a great failing of mine. Um, <laughs> That's the only one. I think I've seen like half of that. It's not particularly uh, good, although I was like rather young when I watched it. And so maybe I would look at it mm-hmm. through a different lens now. Yeah. Uh, but I remember thinking to myself, this isn't particularly good. <laughs> when I saw the first half of Happy Hooker on like Cinemax in like 1999. So like maybe maybe it's aged really well. I cannot say. But uh, here recently, um, there's been a, a big push to, uh, well, maybe not a big push, but there have been a couple of films that really do frankly talk about modern sex work. I saw a film just this year called Pleasure, which is really, really good about uh, what the modern porn industry looks like. Yeah. Uh, there was a film a couple of years ago called Cam, uh, which is about the life of a modern cam girl mm-hmm. that is uh, a sex worker who appears on just like live internet broadcasts. Uh, I feel like Clute is sort of like the grandmother of all of these. Clute is... Uh, laying down a very very frank talk about sex work in a way that is trying to skew away from exploitation. Uh, and so all of the conversations in this movie, and this movie is about its conversations. It's, you know, there's this sort of uh, thriller aspect to it, mm-hmm. but I think the thriller aspect is meant to underline how how, where the danger comes from when it comes to sex work. And what I appreciate about Clute is it doesn't ever, not once, vilify the profession. That yeah. it, it, the villains that appear in sex work have nothing to do with the sex worker and everything to do with Johns who think they can get away with it and yeah. Johns who aren't punished and who are continued to uh, 
act badly and hurt people on the regular and not be prosecuted because thanks to good old American sexism, uh, the <laughs> women are te- tend to be blamed for when they're victimized by Johns. And, 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 and the movie even, I think, appreciates this. There's a, there's a bit at the beginning where initially uh, we don't meet Jane Fonda. Initially we meet Donald Sutherland. And he has these very good friends with the guy who goes missing. Uh, in the guy's uh, desk, they find uh, letters, obs- quote-unquote obscene letters that have been written yeah. to a particular woman in New York. We're going to find out very quickly that that's Jane Fonda. Uh, so they begin to suspect that this guy who's married, seem- seemingly had an idyllic family life, had a, a, a very disturbed double life. Yeah, uh, and Donald Sutherland. At uh, six months later, when the police go nowhere, Donald Sutherland is on the case, and they tell Donald Sutherland what they did. What they did was they tracked down the woman in New York. They asked her some questions, and then they arrested her and threw her in prison for a couple of months for being stalked. Mm. I mean, yeah, okay, she's she's a sex worker, but like, let's be honest here. They they. they threw her in prison because they were looking for a rich white guy who went missing. Yeah, and then yeah. later on, then they say like, yeah, and then we were convinced she didn't know anything. So we let her go. We ruined her life completely by doing that, of course, but we let her go. And uh, now she says she's being stalked by the guy, but we gave up on it. And I'm like, wait a minute <laughs> on top of, on top of treating Jane Fonda, like she's not a human being, like she's just someone to be, thrown in prison just for being attacked by somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, she's in jeopardy. You have every reason to suspect she's in jeopardy. And you, you're not even following that as a lead just because she's a sex worker and you don't care. That's some fucked up shit. And, and sadly, yeah, that's and some status quo type shit. And the movie treats it as such. It, it's status quo, I, I think, well, but I think this movie actually does have a point of view. I, I don't think sure. it's just saying that's status quo and that's what we should expect and that's how things should continue. I think the movie is actually very judgmental of that system. It points out yeah, that no, this is, yeah, yeah th- this is actually an incredibly sympathetic film toward the Jane Fonda character. And Jane Fonda gives a really sympathetic performance and Donald Sutherland is not judgmental of her. The villain of the piece is a villain. Uh, so it, it it's terrible that this happened, and this mm-hmm. is a movie that's trying to sort of shine some light on it. This happens a lot. People are are jailed for when they are victimized, and the yeah. victimizers are not punished. The the one thing I kind of disagree with you on what you just said is mm-hmm. when you said that Donald Sutherland isn't judgmental of Jane Fonda. Initially, he doesn't come right out and say it. He doesn't make a thing of it. He isn't outwardly rude about it. But there is a scene early on after they've met, she didn't trust him. They started spending mm-hmm. a little time together and she appreciates that he's at least trying to do the right thing. Uh, and he says something and it's basically, and he comes from a small town and he yeah. basically says something about how all you people in New York, you've just degraded into sin. That's a little judgy. Uh, yeah. Maybe not specifically of Jane Fonda, but it is judgy. Mm. I, I, I think suppose that, so. Um, I, yeah. I think by, maybe I'm just sort of thinking that by the end of the film, he, he seems to have less of that kind of an attitude because he's actually yeah. warmed to Jane Fonda and they've actually grown very fond of each other and he, un, he he's fond of Fonda. And yeah. He, uh, uh, sorry, that, no, that, that's not good. my joke. I, I, I took that joke from uh, um, uh, Space Ghost. 
that's also fine. But the, the, that's what they said when Bridget Fonda came on. I'm Fonda Fonda. Uh, I'm sure they've. I'm sure every <laughs> Fonda has heard of that even before Space Ghost. I, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, sure that's happened. Anyway, you're going to cut out all these stupid jokes I'm making. No, uh, and, you're stuck uh, with all of these. These are part of the permanent record. Ah, shit. Uh, <laughs> I even forgot what I was saying. No, he, we were talking he, about he Donald becomes, Sutherland. We were talking about Donald Sutherland. Sutherland uh, become, like, he, he grows as a character, and he becomes mm-hmm. more understanding of the Jane Fonda character. That, I, that's, I, that's here's my, th- here's my thing. There's a couple of things in this movie that I think are absolutely superlative. We've already talked about Jane Fonda's performance. I'm sure it'll come up again. Mm. There's a couple of things about this movie that I just absolutely love, and I will gush about un- uh, uh, until the end of time. There's also some things that I don't think entirely work in this movie, and I think the good more than 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 compensates for it. I think the good so balances any my critiques out for the most part. Mm. But one of them actually is Donald Sutherland's character, not Sutherland himself. He's a very good performer, uh-huh. but Donald Sutherland's character I find kind of. They play him as like the strong silent type, which is not in and of itself a bad thing. But there's some. He's kind of stoic, and I can live with that. That's totally fine. That's not a problem in and of itself. The problem is, initially, Sutherland seems to be playing him a very particular way. Uh, Jane Fonda is repeatedly coming on to him, and she's doing it because, in an effort to, because she's initially uncooperative uh, when just answering his questions. Uh, he records her uh, in her apartment, setting up future dates. He's, he's blackmailing her basically to help her, to help him with the investigation. Not a cool thing to do. He does give her the tapes back eventually. And in order to get them back, she offers to sleep with him. It's. It, she even talks about like people pay hundred bucks for for this, and I'm offering it to you for nothing. And wow. he has no interest. Yeah. Not not like I'm oh you're so sexy but I'm tempted. He's just completely unfazed and she does it so many times and he's so completely unfazed by it that I'm watching this and I'm watching this as a gray sexual man and I'm watching this and I'm like okay maybe he's gay. Maybe okay. he's asexual which is also be fine. Maybe they're not going to have the terminology for that. But what if mm. he's just not interested? Yeah. And wouldn't that be a treat? Wouldn't that be an interesting person for Jane Fonda to interact with? As someone who every man views lasciviously, mm-hmm. here's a guy who doesn't. And yeah. that will change their dynamic. Oh, how exciting. I, I can't wait. And I had forgotten this because I'd seen this movie back in college and I haven't since. Mm-hmm. Then midway through the movie, she's scared because the guy's stalking her and she's, he's leaving creepy phone calls. And Donald Sutherland has taken an apartment in the same building as her. Yeah. And she goes down and says, I'm scared to be alone. And Donald Sutherland says, that's fine. Uh, come on in. Uh, relax. Uh, why don't you take the bed? I'll take this fold out. And okay. she says, fine. And then they just sort of fall asleep next to each other. And then she crawls into bed with him and tries to make the moves on him. And now, all of a sudden, for no particular reason, after only dispassionate interactions, mm-hmm. is he just like, oh, yeah, gotta get me some. And I'm like... This is a thing that happened in the 70s a lot. This is just a common storytelling device I've seen in a lot of, mature, People, of quote unquote, well, mature adult dramas in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. Completely yeah, dispassionate male female. What? We saw this as well in uh, Three Days of the Condor with uh, yeah. uh, Robert Redford. Completely dispassionate or indeed actually adversarial. It's not flirtatiously adversarial, but actually adversarial mm-hmm. relationships. But if you're alone in an apartment long enough in the 1970s, you, mm. you just have sex. 
And afterwards, even if the relationship itself is still uh, laconic, uncommunicative, based on distrust or, again, adversarial uh, uh, qualities, you're also in love with each other. And Mm. I'm like, how fucked up was romance in the 1970s? That something like this relationship include her character starts talking about it, it's like why can't I accept his love and I'm like because he's not actually giving you much love he's giving what? you a lot of tolerance and acceptance which is good but yeah. I'm not really seeing a lot of love here there's something about well, but, his character that feels it feels like the script is saying one thing and Donald Sutherland's performance yeah. is saying something very different well he, he, here's here's how I read their relationship I think uh, first of all keep in mind this is um, this is prior to the AIDS crisis. So yes. sex, casual sex was viewed with slightly different eyes. Uh, Agreed. Ca- casual sex was something that could just happen uh, between two adults kind of dispassionately. That's how it was depicted in a lot of movies at the very least. Uh, and he was uh, kind, he was not, he was trying to keep things professional between them. Because he is a private investigator, she's a sex worker, and I think in just sort of acknowledging her and her work and not becoming lascivious at all, that was his way of staying so, sort of sort of cold and and uh, and, and uh, uh, composed. Mm-hmm. He uh, he he's he's not an overtly sexual guy. He's not in it for the lasciviousness. He is here to solve a crime, and he also understands. Just naturally. In fact, his dispassionateness is a way of him acknowledging her humanity. He, uh, in not responding lasciviously to her coming on to him, uh, he is not, uh, he's kind of demonstrating that he sees her more than just sort of, uh, as more than a sex worker. Mm. And, but, but she, again, though, the movie the argues hand, that that's not on, a bad thing. It, and it's not a bad thing. And, uh, she, uh, meanwhile, has this new man in her life and she, I I saw her as kind of panicking a little bit and falling back on a lot of her, uh, like professional tricks when she's with a man, she's used to speaking with them in this sort of flirty way when she's hired. She, uh, you know, we actually get to see her on a, a few of her dates and how she talks to some people and how she tries to, uh, what she says to make them feel good. In fact, there's a really, uh, there's a recording of the things she says and what she says and how that's kind of like played against her in this really kind of insidious way uh, late in the film. Uh, and I think that she, it was the two of them, these two different characters kind of uh, sussing each other out a little bit. She's kind of pushing toward him a little bit in a, on a like an overtly sexual kind of way. He's not taking the bait. And I saw a... a it's not necessarily an affection or romance, but it's definitely an adult kind of respect and regard for one another. Right. That might play a little bit better uh, if maybe the characters were a little bit older in a modern film. Uh, the characters are both in like, like I'd say they're in their mid thirties in this one. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if they actually list Jane Fonda's age in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the implication is that she's been doing what she's been doing for a, quite a while, so yeah. I don't think she's supposed to be, like, young, young. Yeah, so uh, I think when, yeah. when it came to... She's a woman. To... She's an adult. She's not, yeah. like, she, that's that's kind of the point. She's old enough to make her own choices and exactly. to be in control and, of her life and career. And, and yeah, they've, they've both of these people have made enough decisions in their lives that they know where they are, they know where they stand, and they have their principles. And... Mm. 
I feel like that moment where they uh, where they're finally in bed together is is a moment of genuine vulnerability, where they don't have to play at the sort of game anymore. They no longer have to demonstrate for each other what kind of person they are. They already know at that point. So mm-hmm. when they have sex, it's actually it reads to me at least as being a little bit more genuine even if it is still a little bit sort of cold and dispassionate. I think it's a, a I think it's a result of the film being kind of emotionally subdued more than it is any kind of mishandling of the romance between them. It is absolutely emotionally subdued. That is clearly a conscious choice and I appreciate mm-hmm. that and I understand that. I do believe, however, that there is a little something a little lopsided about it. I, I see your points. I agree with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe we disagree about the interpretation, but um after they have sex, though, I think is very significant because Donald Sutherland doesn't really change much and Jane Fonda does. You say that she panics and she does. And she even talks to, she has a therapist in this movie yeah. uh, that she goes to a few times. And oftentimes what she's telling her therapist is either directly informing, it's used as like a voiceover, not necessarily as a scene in and of itself. It's yeah. used as a voiceover to inform or provide maybe contradictory uh, uh, ideas based on what she's actually doing. So she may be behaving one way in the footage, but in the voiceover, she's talking about how much she really cares about him. Yeah. Uh, but she's talking about how he's like, you know, her, her, his ability to like sort of like break through those defenses that she has. She talks kind of in a way like, um, I think nowadays, if the same conversation we're having would be had, the way that she describes being with a John. Uh, would be uh, described as a form of disassociation. She mm-hmm. isn't present with them. She's yeah. in control. She is able to manipulate them. It's a job, but she's not actually having a meaningful relationship in any on any level with any of those people. Mm-hmm. And having any having a relationship that feels meaningful, as she says, with Donald Sutherland is what's throwing her off. And making her sort of fall back on some less pleasant behaviors. Mm-hmm. The movie seems to think that throwing herself into that relationship is going to, and I'm going to use the words that the movie doesn't use, but I think Jane Fonda actually did, uh, fix her in a way. Maybe not mm-hmm. make her, like, it, 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 the movie ends with the implication that she's she's telling her therapist that she never wants to leave New York. She doesn't want to like give up on her job just because she met a guy. But the last thing we see in the movie, and this is you know, spoilers, we talk about the whole film. The last thing we see in the movie is her doing exactly that. That she found the right guy, and she's gonna leave this really awesome New York apartment. Like very spacious, <laughs> hardwood floors. Like I'm watching this, and like they uh... use production design to try to make it look yeah. a little dingy, and I'm like, no, I am salivating over this apartment. It's got a fireplace, my god! Yeah, like, what 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 was once a, a tiny, dingy apartment in in New York is now a luxury apartment. Um, yeah, I, I I totally get what you're saying. Um, it's it's sort of like chasing Amy syndrome. If you look at the yeah. details of the story, you can understand every beat of it, and you can understand the motivation of it. But when you look at the broad strokes of the story, it really starts to fall into some pretty uh, pretty bad cliches. Like, uh, I bring up uh, Chasing Amy. Chasing Amy is a a film about a man who falls in love with uh, a lesbian. And uh, there's all this interplay between, you know, 
what the state of their relationship is because he's falling he's clearly falling in love with her but they can't have a relationship she's not going to have a relationship with a man but then and then she does uh, yeah. she admits and then uh, then it becomes about sort of his insecurity over her sexual history and yeah. I, I feel like he's taken to task for it but at yes. the same time even at the time uh, Chasing Amy was criticized for uh, playing into a very common uh, 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 cliche trope uh, bad story about uh, about lesbians and how mm-hmm. uh, gay women just needed the right man um, I would argue yeah. if gay women just need the right men, then straight men just need the right men, don't they? Uh, well, I would that. argue that one of the issues with Chasing Amy is that it's another example of the characters not really accepting the existence of bisexuality or pansexuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because yeah, the idea is, okay, pretty, then we established uh, earlier on that she had had sex with other men in her past, and he mm. can't handle that. Because he mm-hmm. feels the need to define. Everything has to be defined. And every exception needs to yeah, be exclusively be... for his benefit. And so, yeah, yeah it's a, a, it's a well. kind of but, a messed uh, up movie, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, again, and Clute has that same sort of thing going on. Clute is, again, you look in at the details, you see uh, she had this bad experience. She was stalked. She was beaten up. The guy came back. Uh, somebody tried to protect her, couldn't do it. And so it, it had become so overwhelming that she decided to give up on sex work. Uh, you understand from like scene to scene, but then you take, take a little bit of a step back and it really is about her finding uh, the man she needs to leave the biz. And that becomes incredibly sex negative and it becomes uh, a really kind of cliched sort of thing. And it does start to fall back on a lot of, uh, scare films and morality plays from an earlier time. So yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I feel like it's good storytelling, and I feel like they they do a lot of it pretty mm. responsibly, but in the broad strokes, yeah, it's, it's actually not not necessarily saying something really great. And again, it's important to look at the film yeah. in context, and the context of the time, massively progressive for the time. Oh, d- and, way, and honestly, way, way progressive. And honestly, even today, pretty good. Like some of the terminology would be outdated and this sort of general Jane Fonda needs to be fixed kind of vibe at the end, which is, I don't want to oversell. The movie tries to undersell it, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, even that can't ruin it because it's still just largely just so respectful and matter of fact about Jane Fonda and the other people in her career and sex work as, again, work. Mm. That you kind of just have to appreciate it. But I think it's also worth noting that, looking back on it, it's got, it's, it doesn't necessarily nail every aspect. I'll tell you mm. one thing that does nail every aspect. There's one thing in this movie, besides Jane Fonda, who's amazing, there's one thing in this movie that is so absolutely, unbelievably impeccable that I was shocked to find out it wasn't Oscar-nominated, and that is a cinematography by Gordon Willis. <laughs> okay. Gordon Willis is one of the great cinematographers. That's just a that's just period. Just absolutely one of the absolute legends. Uh, very few uh, uh, cinematographers painted with shadow as beautifully as Gordon Willis does, and Clute is an excellent example of that. Uh, you may also recall his work from another Alan Bakula film, All the President's Men. Uh, he was a cinematographer for The Godfather 1 and 2. Um, absolutely stunning lighting in any Gordon Willis yeah, joint. Yeah. And, and this and is I, no exception. So yeah. much of this movie is in shadow, but 
unlike some recent films I've seen, where so much of the film is in shadow, and you just can't tell what the fuck is going on, <laughs> he knows how to tell a story that way. Mm-hmm. He, the, like, 90% of the screen can be in pitch darkness, and you know exactly what's going on. And it is, and you know how to feel about it. And it is yeah, yeah. absolutely stunning. Almost every frame of painting is a cliche, but Clute is a great example of it. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I also just looked up Gordon Willis. I didn't realize mm-hmm. how many Oscars he had won. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, he, he, he had he, a uh, stunning career. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Worked with Bakula a lot. Um, and by the way, when you say uh, won... Not, not he, Oscars. Uh, um, not mm-hmm. Oscars, just... Awards. Awards he had won. Yeah, he's won a million awards. He yeah. actually never won an Oscar for cinematography, which is yeah. absurd. He was nominated for The Godfather Part 3. <laughs> Not one or two. Three. He was nominated the, for Part 3. Uh, he was nominated he, for the movie Zelig, which admittedly yeah. is interestingly photographed. And then he ended up winning uh, a, a 2010 Oscar. He won an Honorary Academy Award. And here's... I love how they described it. For unsurpassed mastery of light shadow color and motion and i will say this to the academy that's very nice but every single time he he shot a film you say it was surpassed by at least four others <laughs> that year well, well you so, know what that's that's the academy saying whoops our bad isn't it yeah it really is the godfather part three it's not look, even that good well shot a movie like the, well, i was gonna say do if, great if you're going to complain about anything in The Godfather Part 3, the fo- the photography is not one of the things you complain about. The photography no, is fine. No, it's fine, but I wouldn't put it up there with even The Godfather Part 1 and 2. I don't think it's really a standout film visually in the trilogy. I think the first two are much more gorgeous, frankly. <laughs> I, I, I remember a lot of, uh, just a lot of good use of, like, warm browns and uh yes kind of earth colors in that movie so you know if if i can remember if i can remember sort of the 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 mood of the film because of the photography you did something right Mm -hmm. um that said that father part three is yeah absolutely uh um you can tell sort of his evolving style or the way he kind of went back and forth because clute yeah uh he worked with uh alan j pakula he worked with Coppola and he worked with Woody Allen, uh, and, and shot a lot of films for all, all of the all three of those filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the mood he was going for for each one of those filmmakers. Uh, and I feel like with uh, Pakula, and I've seen a couple of his movies, uh, the ones that that Pakula directed and that uh, he also shot. And there's there's sort of like a, a an inky terseness to mm-hmm. the visuals. Uh, uh, there's a heck of a lot more shadow in an Alan J. Pakula movie than would be in a Coppola movie or a Woody Allen movie. Uh, and not just because of the genre. I think he knows what those directors are looking for and he mm. knows how to shoot it. And yeah, Clute is, it, it really, yeah. When I think of Clute, it, it, I don't want to call it expressionist cause it's not that stylish. It's not like a stylized film, but it does make good use of like little squares of light and a lot of dark areas and dark areas behind mm. people. Even when they're in a well-lit room, yeah. it's a very kind of utilitarian daylight. Uh, and then when things get really dark, that's when sort of uh, fear kind of creeps in. Yeah, like um, the climax of the movie. And I one thing I love about Clute uh-huh. is that the climax of the movie, not an action sequence. 
No. By any no. measure. By any normal, a lot of movies will like find a way. Oh, we're ramping up to the end here. We, how do we escalate the tension? Which is something mm-hmm. most movies do. We want to up the stakes towards the end. It's the confrontation between the hero and the villain. What do we do? How do we make that play? <clears throat> For the most part, Clute has a conversation. <laughs> it's a very creepy conversation. It's a very threatening conversation. But it's just a conversation between Jane Fonda and the killer in a room. And... Mm. It's a dark room. It's in like it's in like a uh, like a textile factory or, or like a, a clothing uh, business, not yeah, not a department yeah. store, but like where they like so close. It's mm-hmm. late at night. It's dark out. It's dark inside. Almost all the lights have been turned off. They're speaking in nearly complete shadow, and you can see their shadows like in perfect silhouette up against like this this murky light from that's coming in from a from a foggy window. Yeah, and that's the climax. Just that interaction, her trying to tell this guy what he wants to hear, because her telling him what he wanted to hear is ultimately what he thinks is the excuse that get, that sent him off on a murderous rage. She told him when they initially uh, uh, had a had a that date uh-huh. that uh, to to tell him whatever he actually wanted to do. Let your inhibitions go. That's the secret to happiness: is to just be honest about who you yeah, are and what yeah. you want, and you can do that with me. And under most circumstances, that would be a positive experience for him, and she would facilitate that. And that's the exchange that they agreed upon for money. This guy wants to kill people, and he had been repressing that for a very long time. And when Jane Fonda told him it's okay, you can do literally whatever you want, he decided that was the excuse he needed in order to be a terrible human being. Yeah, yeah. And that's what he throws in her face. And it's disgusting how much he's able to misinterpret that. And how men look at sex workers as some kind of thing to be used. Mm-hmm. Not a person yeah, offering yeah. a service, a very generous service. Thank you for your work. But, like, you were this... You were my MacGuffin. You were you were just this excuse that I needed, and it's repulsive. Just how far gone this guy is, and how inhuman he has become. Even while he is trying to defend his own humanity by saying, "I don't think of myself as that bad a guy. I'm not worse than anyone else out there." <laughs> he is, but like he he he. It, it's it's. Almost more perverse that he thinks that he's humanizing, that there's something like you can really relate to about him. And maybe yeah, we can yeah. understand him. Maybe we can, he tells us who he is and we can believe him and we can be like, oh, okay, well, that guy's messed up. I, I, I that, you know, that, that sucks. But also, he's a murderer <laughs> and he's, he's, he's scary. It's, it's, and that whole sequence is, I, I think it ends too abruptly. I think they, they kind of didn't really think out like the best way to just sort of deal with him yeah uh but it's it's quick and they get it over with and that that part's fine it's maybe it could have been a little stronger but uh that whole confrontation between him and jane fonda is just like hairs on the back of your neck creepy yeah yeah um i, I know i've seen a scene similar to this in something else where um 
yeah, like a murderer keeps on saying how how he's not a bad guy, but you you hear that a lot, uh, and this and this goes back to I think one of the same uh, central themes of the whole movie, which is uh, not just uh, trying to talk uh, casually and frankly about sex work, not just trying to put a human face on sex work, but trying to remove the all too common stigma of blaming victims of sexual assault uh for the assault Mm -hmm. uh and that's that's exactly what this movie is kind of all about isn't it it's about uh, a sex worker who speaks very frankly about sex who is very open about sex she's a very sexual person who uh has found that she's actually very good at being a sex worker and is you know has there's not a moment of like self-doubt or you know Mm self-punishing she doesn't feel bad about it it doesn't have the fallen woman thing and she's still victimized, and it's not on her at all. Mm. Um, uh, did you ever see Gregor Aki's film Mysterious Skin? You know, I never have. Uh, and a lot of people told me it's great, but I know what it's about, and it's yeah, one of those things that I'm I'm never in the mood to watch. <laughs> it's 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 a pretty rough film, but what I think uh, Gregor Aki is doing in that film is something that Clute uh, also did. And that is trying to explode a lot of myths. Um, there is uh, Mysterious Skin is about childhood sexual abuse. It is actually a really, really difficult film to watch. Um, but if you sort of read about childhood sexual abuse, you'll notice a lot of these myths kind of coming up in the conversation. Uh, that victims tend to behave in a more sexual fashion, or uh, it's something that changes their their very sexuality, in fact, or it changes the kind of person they're attracted to. Like, all of these uh, myths that are clearly made up by people who have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, that, and Greg Araki points out that, no, though you can be incredibly sexual, and your sexuality is set, and you can be attracted to a certain kind of a person you know, from when you're a child, but if if you s- suffer at the hands of an abuser, it's still going to cause a, a deep abiding trauma. And people suffer that kind of trauma in different ways. And it is about two different kids who uh, go th- the kind of process that differently. Mm. I feel like Clute is trying to be really frank about sex and point out that sex workers are... <laughs> Uh, and I, I, I'm sorry to use such frank language, but sex workers aren't asking for it. Uh, mm-hmm. The whole, the whole idea of you know, people bringing assault onto themselves is this. Why? And it's even wider spread. You know, in the 70s, it's still unfortunately widespread today. But uh, I think Clued is trying to say nothing about what who she is or what her story is has anything to do with the fact that she is being targeted and stalked by this horrible human being. It's all on him. It's not on her whatsoever. So yeah. I, I feel like they're really trying to do something very, uh, very, very kind of frank and uh, very kind of uh, intentional with all of this. I agree. I, I, I just feel like the, the, the only other thing that I think I, I, I'm kind of critical about in this movie, and it's just a pacing thing, and mm-hmm. honestly, I've seen this in other Pakula films. He also did The Pelican Brief. Uh, uh, an early, I, an early, yeah. I, I saw that one back in the 90s. I, that's the yeah. only Grisham that I've read. 
Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I recently rewatched The Pelican Brief like a year ago for an article I was writing, and I haven't seen it since it came out. The first half is great, and then uh, after the second half, after like the middle of the movie and all the character work is kind of like established, it hmm. just kind of becomes about wrapping up the plot. And I oh, think well, yeah. Clute has a little too much of that. There's a lot of just business in the second half. <laughs> after her her after her relationship with Clute, uh, which oh by the way that's another thing that kind of bugs me. Why the fuck is this called Clute? It's not about Clute. It's about it's about <laughs> Jane Fonda's character. Yeah, it's, he doesn't have nearly. He doesn't have a journey. He goes. He changes a little. She has a journey. Like why is it about? Clute? Is it just? Is he just think he has a more interesting name? We can't call it Daniels. We have to call it Clute. Like, what to call her Clute? What the hell? What does this even mean? We can't call it Daniels. It's ridiculous. Because like, wasn't her name like Brie Daniels or something like that in the uh, movie? Brie, Brie something, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah Brie Daniels. Yeah, that's right. It Brie is Brie Daniels. Daniels. I, I was very annoyed. I was watching uh, I was watching it with subtitles just because, you know, life. Mm. And um, at the end of the movie, when the killer confronts Jane Fonda, and the killer has... A little uh, portable audio recorder, which was such a novel device, like a pocket-sized audio recorder in the in 1971, I think, when this movie came out, mm. uh, that they felt the need to, like, lampshade it. Like, Donald Sutherland says, oh, he has a pocket recorder. Yeah, I've heard about those. And I'm like, wow, that's funny. It's like, yeah. in, it's like, it's like in Scream when the cop says, oh, my God. They have a cellular phone. They can call from anywhere. It's just I, a little dated. That's fine. It's just, I, I, I can not never making, make fun of a film because it's using the technology that was available. I'm not making time. fun of the film. I'm not making fun of the film. It's just funny to watch things like when they were just in their infancy and people yeah. weren't used to them yet. It's just kind of funny now, mm. but in, in a perfectly acceptable way. It's just kind of funny to think about. Mm. But um, he, he plays a recording that he made of him killing another character. That we've seen before. Uh-huh. If you watch it on HBO Max with the subtitles, uh-huh. when the audio recorder starts playing, they'll give you, like, the name of the characters on the voiceover. Mm-hmm. They give you the name of Jane Fonda's character. So, if you're only listening to this, if you're only watching this with the subtitles, like, you can't actually hear the audio, mm-hmm. and you're watching this on HBO Max, what they're telling you is that Jane Fonda is currently in the room with the killer, and the killer is playing a recording of him murdering Jane Fonda. Which is a very different scene. Uh, I I, I thought the impression was he was playing the recording of their previous encounter where he beat her up. Nope, nope, nope. he's playing... They specifically say the name... Of the character. It's a character who he had killed earlier in the movie in order to protect his identity because she could recognize him. Yeah. They specific no, I, I checked. They specifically say the character name. But, but in the not... voice but in the but in the in the in the uh, subtitle, it says you're listening to Jane Fonda. Oh. But no, he's killing someone on 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 that audio. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's not just beating them up, it's killing them. It's it's a different thing. It's a the, a, a bit of a goof. A bit of a subtitled goof. I've seen worse subtitled goofs. <laughs> that, that is but a that's a subtitled odd, goof. Yeah. That, that, that dramatically changes the scene. So if you watch the movie with subtitles and you were confused by that scene, you they that's that's a goof. Someone someone screwed that one up. But um, in any case, 
uh, I forget. The, oh, oh, uh, uh, the other thing I was thinking about when I was watching this movie because um, an actor. Actually, there's a couple of actors with like kind of cool small roles uh, mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, amongst whom um, is it Gene Stapleton who plays uh, like a secretary for one scene at the end of the movie? Uh, yes, that was Gene Stapleton. Uh, yeah, Gene, from Archie Bunker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she has one scene, and I'm watching this with Michelle, and Michelle's like. There's no small parts <laughs> because she's she is just taking over the movie for one scene, and all she is is someone's secretary saying he's not in right now, and she owns the film. The the one that blindsided me, like I was staring at him for like a full fifteen seconds before I realized that it was Roy Scheider. Yeah, uh, like oh oh Roy, wait, is it? Like I'm looking right at him. He's looking right back at me, and it's like I know it's Roy Scheider, but I couldn't believe it for a second. I was like oh yeah, yeah I guess it is Roy Scheider. Yeah, Roy Scheider. I think this was uh, this is the exact same year the French Connection came out, so it was a big year for Roy Scheider. Yeah, Roy Scheider plays a guy who uh, had briefly been Jane Fonda's pimp, and now she doesn't have one. She describes pimps as guys who just take your money. Yeah, they don't help in any way. They just take your money. So she doesn't need him, but she had she knew him. He actually had some respect for her, uh, and he's it's he's an interesting character. Um, I'm watching this movie and I have the stupidest thought in my head. Because Roy Scheider sounds just a little bit like Rob Schneider. Wait, wait, what? Yeah. You know, from the animal? Yeah, R- Rob Schneider? What? Rob Rob Schneider, that um. name sounds a little bit like Roy Scheider. <laughs> Does it not? Does it not? Uh. I mean, I'm 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 with you, but I'm not sure I want to be. Here's where I'm going with this. Mm. If I had wishes, you know, like magic wishes, <laughs> like a duck came up to me and said, "I am a magic duck. Here are your three wishes." Uh, I would okay. say, I would say that's a thing. I would say, duck, wish number one. I want every Rob Schneider movie and every Roy Schneider movie to switch actors. So that Roy Scheider has the Rob Schneider roles, and Rob Schneider has the Roy Scheider roles. And let me tell you something. All of a sudden, Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo, gets pretty good. And, and Jaws is about the same. I would say, Jaws is about the same. Jaws is yeah. about the same. Uh, Clute might work. I, I'm, not, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure the French Connection would work. I think the French Connection would work about as well as Knock Off now. But now Knock Off is a good movie. So you got to um, think about what we gain in this I'm trying, transaction. I'm trying to, to li- listen to Rob Schneider's voice uh, narrating Mishima. That would be kind of interesting. <laughs> yes. Or or I know you can imagine Rob just Schne- Rob Schneider, Roy Schneider and little Nikki yelling, "You can lunch. do it!" Her <laughs> showing up in naked lunch or something because Roy mm. Schneider's in naked lunch. Um, this is a really stupid conversation. I agree, but but I, I'm glad you brought it up. So uh, thank you. Sure, let, let's let's have this intellectual exercise. Let's the the other Schneider. thing, yeah. Uh-huh. The other thing I wanted when I was watching Clute, because mm. I kept thinking to myself, Clute's kind of a funny name. Like it's kind of fun to say. What what if his name and was then, Jethro Q. Walrus Titty? No. <laughs> you went in a different direction. The yeah. Direction I went was because what's his name? John Clute, isn't that his name? Uh, it's it's uh. It's just Clute. No, I, yeah, I think I think it has his a first, first name. name. Yes, it, I think it's John. Yeah, 
John Clude. Here's what I had in my head. Mm-hmm. John Clude, colon, mall cop. Tagline, who cluded? You know what? There's somebody at uh, uh, Universal's 1440 Entertainment that is, like, writing a check right now. (laughs) Universal, by the way, and I love Universal to pieces for this. I have no judgment to Universal for this. Universal is the one movie studio that I'm aware of that repeatedly, continually makes live-action, straight-to-video sequels of some of their biggest franchises for no conceivable reason other than just to keep that franchise alive. They will do Kindergarten Mm. Cop 2. Yeah. They will do Cop and a Half 2. They did a sequel to Inside Man that nobody watched. They did a sequel to Backdraft recently. And they just recently announced that they're coming out with R.I.P.D. 2. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, um, is that even a valuable IP for you? What are you planning to do with yeah, that? Yeah, R.I.P.D. was an enormous bomb. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, um, <sighs> Universal's 1440 Entertainment. Um, I, I know they're handling Rob uh, Rob Zombie's Munsters movie. Um, but yeah, yeah. They, they're the ones who are like, Let, let's do Kindergarten Cop. Let's do... Uh, Scorpion King sequels. Let's do all mm-hmm. the, the Latter Day Tremors movies. I like the Latter Day Tremors movies actually. Um, yeah, most of them pretty good. Yeah, yeah they, they did a, a sequel, like sequels to Jarhead and sequels to <laughs> Dragonheart. Uh, uh, what else have they done? Um, um, they did a lot of Scorpion Kings. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Scorpion Kings. I, I recently put on Twitter when I found out they were doing RAPD too, because apparently y'all y'all do anything. Hmm. So I have two pitches for them. The first one, and I think this is gold. Waterworld 2, colon, dry land. It's Waterworld, but on land. That's how the movie ended. They they found dry land. Exactly. And so the next one's good. Yeah, yeah. And so much cheaper. Just do it on land now. And we win, Right. So, but here's what I understand. That's a big action movie. They're not going to want to give me the reins of that, Mm -hmm. like, without having some kind of cred. So what I offer to do to Universal's home video department, which does all these sequels, in exchange for an opportunity to do Waterworld 2 Dryland, I will do a test film. I will do a film just to prove that I can direct a movie. And I'll write it too Mm -hmm. if you want. And it's called King Ralph 2, All Thrown Up. All Thrown Up. Yeah. So, so it's and it's about... all about King Ralph's son. Okay, so it's a pun on growing up, but also throwing up. Exactly. And that if that isn't the demo, if that isn't the demo, mm. what is? I understand what the people want. Oh my god. And they want King Ralph 2, All Thrown Up. 1440 did a film called Granddaddy Daycare. Yeah, they did. Uh, oh, I, I, yeah, I was just lo- I was just did. looking up what what have I missed? Uh, yeah, they also they did, did a couple uh, sequels to the movie Honey. Yeah, yeah, they did Honey? that. that yeah. They did those a while ago, but yeah, they did those. Yeah, yeah, like I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't know those existed. Those, but th- uh, that at least makes sense because those are like you know, Honey itself wasn't a super expensive movie. Mm. You know, you can crank those suckers out and like get a little bit of content there. But like, yeah, some of these are like. Shouldn't a backdraft movie be expensive? 
Shouldn't they kind of, wasn't that kind of the whole point? It was like this big towering inferno kind of movie, a lot of pyro effects. Hmm. We should do a podcast where we do nothing but the Streets of Video Universal movies. Just to, just to do the fourteen forty movies. That's not a bad idea, actually. We should put that on the back burner. But no, we're gonna have to do that the podcast. Well, 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 let's talk about that. All right. Well, let's talk about that another time. No one uh, steal that until we're right, done. All right. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, do you have any last thoughts on Clute before we wrap uh, things I, up? I think I said it. I think that I I admire its uh, how devoted it is to trying to say something really positive about uh, sexuality and modern sex and sex work and uh, how, and I admire even though it's not 100% great, I I admire how close they got and admire how well it still plays even at this late date. A lot of the attitudes are not necessarily bad attitudes, they're just dated and Mm. uh, that is not something this film could have predicted. So it's not going to play as well today as it did in 1971, I'm guessing. Uh, but at the same time, I really admire the attempt, and uh, mm. I admire that they really tried to get into these characters. And I do like these characters. I like Brie Daniels a lot. I think she's a really wonderful yeah. character. I'm glad Jane Fonda got the Academy Award for this. Uh, yeah, I, I I really dug Clute. I, I didn't expect it to be as as fucking dark as it is, but mm. uh, you know, it actually yeah, dra- it's a very dra- dragged me down a little bit, which you know I admire if, yeah. if a film can do that. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, too. I admire so much of what it attempts to do, and I, I think it's it's actually really unfortunate that 50 years... This movie's 50 years old now. Mm. 50 years later, yeah, a few things have aged. A few things would be like, okay, I wouldn't say it that way now. I wouldn't do it that way now. Mm. But for the most part, it's portrayal of sex workers as, as a positive work, yeah. like an actual thing that people do that is can be matter-of-fact and not judged, at least by the filmmaker. Uh, the fact that that still feels pretty progressive is sad. That we have not moved that far yeah, the, the away needle, from, from the those attitudes. The needle hasn't moved on a lot of those attitudes. It's, uh, sadly, not enough. Anyway, so that it, it still plays in many respects rather well today. Uh, the cinematography is absolutely superb. Mm. We didn't really mention the score. The score is quite excellent as well. Uh, I agree. I think Jane Fonda is excellent. Uh, I think Donald Sutherland is fine, but I don't think his character is as consistently written as maybe he should be, but still good. Uh, As a murder mystery, it starts losing some steam in the second half, but the climax is solid. Uh, So, yeah, overall, this is an excellent movie, and people really do need to watch it. But I do think it's okay to say there are elements that work better than others. Anyway, that is Critically Reclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, We're going to do something a little different of the next couple of months. Um, If you're a subscriber to the channel, you probably know that Critically Reclaimed is a podcast that we alternate with our podcast, Cancel Too Soon. We do Cancel Too Soon one week. Cancel Too Soon, we review TV shows that lasted one season or less. And we do Critically Reclaimed every other week. Mm. However, we have approached September, and September is a bit sacred (laughs) to us at Cancel Too Soon. It's 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 a traditional event that we have on the Cancel Too Soon podcast. Cancel Too Soon, every September, becomes Suddenly Last Season, where Whitney and I review every week a television series that was only recently canceled. That is within the last last season. Exactly. So, we will be doing that. And, And in order to cram in as many shows as possible, Critically Reclaimed will be taking a bit of a breather. Uh, we'll be taking a breather for the months of September, and because Cancel Too Soon also has 
our our usual uh, uh, spooky tober. <laughs> uh, we're going to also take a break in the month of October to focus on horror shows uh, of 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 times gone by. So, the good news is that you will still have a poll. You will still be able to choose some of the stuff that we cover in those months, and we will be having a poll on the Patreon page. Normally, there'd be a poll for Critically Reclaimed, but we're going to have a poll for Cancel Too Soon, and you're going to help us pick one of the shows that we're going to be reviewing on Suddenly Last Season. And we've picked up a pretty impressive list of shows, and we're having trouble whittling it down. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to give you a list of ten shows. We're going to take the top four or five vote-getters, and then we're going to do another poll to whittle it down, and then, depending on how close it is, we might do one more. Because we want the show that everyone wants the most. Mm -hmm. So, instead of voting for Critically Reclaimed next, you're going to get a new poll for Cancel Too Soon in the very near future. Head on over to patreon.com slash network if you want to vote on that poll, if you want to vote on future polls. And if you want exclusive shows, like our new, our new podcast, Step Me Up, Step Me Down, where we review every single film in the Step Up franchise and every single episode of the Step Up television series. We also have podcasts dedicated to the Academy Awards. We review every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We have a podcast dedicated to Star Trek. We're reviewing every single episode of Star Trek in order. And we do commentary tracks. We do uh, hangouts on Discord. We do weekly trivia nights. We have another one coming up next week. So head on over down to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network and thank you to every single one of our patrons without whom our show could not exist. And of course, if you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode, anything we discussed uh, regarding Clute, the makers of Clute, uh, which Rob Schneider movie would be best with Roy <laughs> Schneider in it and vice versa, please let us know. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net or if you'd prefer to send us a letter uh, like 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 the characters in Clute, because they were in the seventies. Uh, you can do so, Whitney. What is our PO box? Write <laughs> yeah, us a letter, like in the seventies. Also, like <laughs> now, <laughs> mail's not gone. Shut uh, up. Send us an actual letter. Uh, send it to the Cri critically acclaimed network, PO box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double o six four. Mm -hmm. And of course we're on uh, Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, that is a wrap. We'll see you next season on the next episode of Cancel Too Soon.